0: Father, as we open up your word, I pray that you give us insight as to how to live. I pray that we would, through the power of your Holy Spirit, have the ability to, to understand not only what was written, but to see how it connects to our lives today. I pray that in my weakness, she would be my strength. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bible this morning, 2 Kings chapter 14. 2 Kings chapter 14. The title of our message this morning is The Sin of a Proud Heart. The Sin of a Proud Heart. And and what we're going to be doing, Joy, I might have to get you to help me. It's not showing up on my end. The Sin of a Proud Heart. What we're going to do is we look at a lot of different happenings as in all of these chapters. We have so many different narrative um, movements, and so many different highlights of unfortunate things we could pick out and evaluate and analyze about wickedness of a person's life. One that seems to really be emphasized here in 2 Kings 14 is pride. I want to read you a passage that many of you know, you may have learned it as a kid. If you're new to church, you may have never heard this passage. But in Proverbs 16, it says, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. As we look at 2 Kings chapter 14, there's going to be four kings mentioned. Two of them are going to really be the focal point. And in order to get handles on this, you have to be familiar with it. The first one's going to be Amaziah of Judah. Amaziah of Judah. Amaziah of Judah is going to really be the focal point for the first 22 verses. You're going, because of Amaziah and the pride that he faced, you're going to be brought into the king of Israel, Jehoash. And you'll see him in verses 8 through 16. The son of Amaziah is a fellow by the name of Azariah. And he's only mentioned because King Amaziah is taken into captivity. And when he's taken into captivity, his son, who's 16 years old, takes the throne. His name is Azariah. And then in the last seven verses of the chapter, 23 through 30, there's a guy with a notorious name. He's named after the gentleman way back, Jeroboam II of Israel, is going to be emphasized. So if you look at this all together, you're basically seeing four kings, Amaziah, Jehoash, Azariah, and Jeroboam II. We start out by looking at a fellow by the name of Amaziah. Amaziah, if you remember at the end of chapter 12, if you go back to the end of chapter 12, you read about the death of his father. His father was killed. Uh, They took him and killed him. And so that's important information. So he comes to the throne after his dad is killed. And immediately as he begins to take power, you know what's on his mind is the life of how his father was taken. So what we're going to seek to do this morning is move through the narrative, understand, okay, this is what's happening here, and we're briefly going to look at the good, we're going to look at the bad, and then we're going to stop and we're going to hone in on some key lessons that we learn from the narrative here. Amaziah verses 1 through verse 22 is central. So if you got your Bible, 2 Kings chapter 14 and verse 1, in the second year of Joash, the son of Jehoaz, king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoadin of Jerusalem. Here's a guy that comes to the throne He's 25 years old. He reigns 29 years. You think about how formative that period of him reigning would have been in his life. He starts at 25 and he goes all the way to 54. And he comes through this period. He mentions his mother, verse 3, And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, yet not like David his father. He did in all things as Joash his father had done. What was it that he did that was not right in the eyes of the Lord? We see some things, even in our first few verses of chapter 14, we're going to see some things that are commendable that he does in his life, but we're also going to see many other things that are going to reveal a major problem in the king's life, in the king's heart. And verse 4 clarifies it, but the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. If, if you ever want to understand the seriousness of that in the De- Levitical law, you would go back to Deuteronomy 12. If you went to Deuteronomy 12, it's verses 2 through 7. Deuteronomy 12, verses 13 and 14, it talks about the high places and about how the law called them to remove them. The people still sacrificed. The people made offerings. And it keeps coming back to this. And I, and I think... We need to be careful to think, well, we don't need to mention again because the text keeps mentions it again, mention it over and over and over and over and over. And when it comes up this much, it's important that we take note of it when it comes up over and over again. And the question is this, is that where is the place of compromise in your life? Where is the place of compromise? Do you justify the places of compromise in your life because of the areas of your life that you're obedient in? Now, think about that. It's interesting how it points out where he's obedient, but it also lists the fact that something is wrong. Something is compromised. And it's important that we consider it. I don't know about you, but I can tell you, um, as someone who has walked with a divided heart before, as someone who has dealt with a heart that wasn't wholly walking with Christ, that when I was asked these kinds of questions as a person in the seat versus someone preaching, I immediately knew what place of compromise I was dealing with. It's not something you have to often really consider and delve and look. Now, that's wise, and we need to pray about it. But so many times when there's compromise in our life, it's clear to us. We just seek to look over it. We seek to avoid it. It could be a relationship. It could be a hobby. It could be a pursuit. It could be anything that is clearly against what God's word calls you to live in a different way. But we see here this compromise. It reminds you of of what the Apostle John says. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And notice how he describes the things of the world. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So we need to keep that in mind as we're moving through this. Verse 5, and as soon as the royal power was firmly in his hand, he struck down his servants who had struck down the king, his father. To be familiar with what you're looking at there, you have to go back to the end of chapter 12. And the end of chapter 12 speaks about the death of his father. It speaks about how his dad was, was murdered. And so now what does he do? The moment that he comes into power and the moment that he is now officially on the throne, he wants to make sure that he goes after the very men that put his father to death. He takes care of that. But then the next verse speaks about what he did not do. Verse 6, but he did not put to death the children of the murderers according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, where the Lord commanded, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers, but each one shall die for his own sin. We're not to bear the consequences or like of, of the sins of our fathers in, in this sense that he obeyed and he adhered to the law. He didn't put to death their kids. And what's interesting is it very well, in his act of obedience to the Mosaic law, later we see potentially that come back. But he honored God. He honored God in the way that he handled this. He did it according to the word. And the passage in the Levitical law The first time I read this, I was thinking, what in the world does it mean? Well, Deuteronomy says, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. That's what we're dealing with. So it's admirable how he followed the law. But then we get into verse 7. He struck down 10,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt and took Salah by storm, and called it Jachthiel, which is its name to this day. Unbelievable as we get moving here. The, the Edomites, this is, uh, if you're looking at a world map today, you're looking at Jordan. Uh, many years ago in my 20s, uh, I backpacked in Jordan with a friend, and we, we hiked all through Petra. And Petra is a, is a magnificent area. Many scholars and many archaeologists, they speculate that Selah is Petra. is Petra. It could be 30 miles north. You know, they're constantly looking in archaeology. Petra is, uh, is, is magnificent. It's, it's the valley of, of, it's the Edomite home. It's the, those who, who lived in the clefts of the rock. And so the Edomites, who are the Edomites? It's important to think about this. The Edomites were the descendants of Esau. I was reading about this in a commentary, and I want you to think about the history here. The twin brother of Jacob. And if you think about it, even um, in their mother's womb, they struggled together. And Esau was first, but Jacob had a grip on his brother's ankle. And what happened? He was the one who supplanted his brother. And they constantly competed with one another. And the nations that descended from them, Israel and Edom. Isn't that fascinating? That the promise that Jacob and Esau would battle one another is the story of Genesis through Malachi. The Edomites. The Edomites are constantly in battle with Israel. And so what we see here is no different. So now, Amaziah strikes down 10,000 Edomites. Now, if you really want to understand the story here, you've got to jot down in your margin or on your notebook, 2 Chronicles chapter 25. 2 Chronicles 25 tells the other side of the story that's not fully given in 2 Kings 14. And we're going to look at that some this morning. Because in 2 Chronicles 25 account, it not only speaks about the 10,000 Edomites he struck down, but 10,000 more captives that were thrown down from the top of the mount at Selah. So he takes Selah by storm. This would have been something that would have been a great victory, a huge victory. If you got your Bibles, go to 2 Chronicles, because we have to understand a little bit more about what's taking place here in the life of King Amaziah tells us some more information, and it really is key to understand more about this man's heart. We read in 2 Chronicles 25, verse 5. Joy, you might could update that, and it might start clicking. Verse 5, Then Amaziah assembled the men of Judah, and set them by father's houses under commanders of thousands and of hundreds for all Judah and Benjamin. And notice this. He mustered those 20 years old and upward and found that they were 300,000 choice men fit for war, able to handle spear and shield. And then we read in verse 6. He hired also 100,000 mighty men of valor from Israel for a 100 talents of silver. But a man of God came to him and said, O king, do not let the army of Israel go with you, for the Lord is not with Israel, with all these Ephraimites. Now, what's going on here? He takes the men of Judah. Now, remember, Israel is the kingdom to the north. Judah is the kingdom to the south. He takes the people of the men of Judah. He collects 300,000 of his men. But then he takes 100,000 mercenaries from the north of Israel. That's what he does. And immediately, he's called out by a man of God. In verse 7, the man of God says, O king, do not let the army of Israel go with you. And then in verse 8, notice what happens. But go, act, be strong for battle. Why should you suppose that God will cast you down before the enemy? For God has power to help or to cast down. He's saying, look, trust God. Don't don't double down on your own human wisdom. Trust that God will take care of you as you go in this battle with Edom. And we have to remember that when we're dealing with the Old Testament narrative and we're dealing with the Old Testament wars, we have to remember the pagan People that stood against the God of Israel. And we have to remember that they were an affront to a holy God. And so when they're now going to go to Edom, he does exactly what he is called to do. And Amaziah, it says in verse 9, said to the man of God, But what shall we do about the hundred talents that I have given to the army of Israel? He'd already paid them, he'd already given these men money. And he basically, this is commendable. At this point, what he does is he loses the money. He sends them on their way. Look at verse 10. Then Amaziah discharged the army that had come to him from Ephraim to go home again, and they became very angry with Judah and returned home in fierce anger. Verse 11. But Amaziah took courage, led out his people, went to the valley of salt, and struck down 10,000 men of Seir. The men of Judah captured another 10,000 alive, took them to the top of a rock and threw them down from the top of the rock and they were all dashed to pieces. Now look at verse 13. But the men of the army whom Amaziah sent back, not letting them go with him to battle, raided the cities of Judah from Samaria to Beth Haran and struck down 3,000 people in them and took much spoil. But here is where it gets tragic. Everything seems right. Here's a guy that not only followed the Levitical law as it related to Deuteronomy and not killing the father's sons, here is a man at this point who has listened to the man of God and has lost the investment that he put in the 100,000 people. He lost all of that silver. He sends them back. And when he sends them back, he goes to battle, trusts God, There's a victory, but look what verse 14 of 2 Chronicles 25 says. And after Amaziah came from striking down the Edomites, he brought the gods of the men of Seir and set them up as his gods and worshiped them, making offerings to them. His heart turned. His heart turned. You get into the passages like this, and you're reading this from a New Covenant perspective. We're looking back to, you know, 700 and something B.C., and here we are in, in, in 2023. We're looking back 2,700 years. We're looking back 2,000 years to the cross, 700 years before the cross. One of the things that we can say with, with certainty according to the record of Scripture Apart from a work of the Holy Spirit, our hearts will not be changed. Our hearts may appear to be right with God, but it's like the parable of the soil, the parable of the sower. It ultimately is revealed in our life. It's hard sometimes to parse through everything we don't understand about these kings in the Old Testament, but the broader principle that we bring it to the present I pray that it would help you to see the complexity and the sinfulness and the depravity of your own heart and the need you have of a Savior. The need you have this morning is not to self-improve. The need you have this morning is not to live a better life. It's not to be more ethical, not that that's wrong. But if your desire to be more ethical is a desire to understand the ways of God and to make yourself approved before him, you misunderstand the entire scripture. This is showing us in so many different ways our need for a greater king. We need a savior. We need a substitute. We need someone to die in our place. We need someone to take the wrath of of God that we deserve and to absorb it himself in our place that's the hope of the gospel because if not our hearts will reveal pride they will reveal wickedness they will reveal the fact that our parents are Adam and Eve so we get in here and and all of this has happened. What happens now? He's setting up gods from Edom. Second Chronicles 25, 15 gives us more. Therefore, the Lord was angry with Amaziah and sent to him a prophet who said to him, why have you sought the gods of a people who did not deliver their own people from your hand? Hmm. But notice here, maybe since he was receptive before, he'll be receptive now. Things have changed. Verse 16, but as he was speaking, the king said to him, have we made you a royal counselor? Stop. Why should you be struck down? So the prophet stopped but said, I know that God has determined to destroy you because you have done this and have not listened to my counsel. He won't listen to godly counsel now. We come back to 2 Kings. And I'll read to you another couple of verses from 2 Chronicles. So wherever you're inclined to go, you can keep your hand in one place and the other. In 2 Kings 14 verse 8, then Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, the son of Jehoash, son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, come, let us look one another in the face. Now, that, you may not understand the, the, the heart of that when you read it without re- reading the rest of the chapter. He's ready to throw down. This isn't like, let's talk. He's like, let's go, man. I just took out Edom, and I'm going to take you out. And Je- notice this. It's, it's unbelievable. Jehoash understands it. And, but if you read 2 Chronicles 25, 17, it gives you more background as to why he challenged the king of Israel. Why did he do this? Well, he's not listening to the counsel of God, but he's listening to counsel. Second Chronicles twenty-five seventeen says, "...then Amaziah, king of Judah, took counsel and sent to Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, "'Come, let us look one another in the face.'" It doesn't tell us that in the Second Kings passage, but 2 Chronicles says he sought counsel. You remember some of the stories that we've seen of bad counsel? It all starts with uh, Rehoboam. Rehoboam, remember he had, a bunch of, uh, he had a bunch of proud, arrogant buddies, and they wouldn't listen to the counselors of his dad. And then rather than listen to wisdom, these proud, strong, arrogant little punks did what they did it their own way. they did it their own way, and that's exactly what's happening here. He's going a different way. we're seeing a different guy all of a sudden, even though he had heated. The Mosaic law, in two other instances, now his heart's being revealed. And now things have turned in a drastic way, or they're at least now revealing themselves. On and on here. What's what's amazing here is is Jehoash is like, he's not real threatened by him. Verse 9, he sent word to Amaziah... And here's what he says, a thistle on Lebanon sent to cedar on Lebanon saying, give your daughter to my son for a wife and a wild beast of Lebanon passed by and trampled down the thistle. Now, what in the world is he saying here? The point of his parable, and I had to look up help for this, is that a puny thistle, Amaziah, easily trampled by any wild beast should not make the mistake of comparing itself in might to the immovable cedar on Lebanon. He's like, hey, man, you are barking up the wrong tree. You don't even want to think about this. But he's not listening to wise counsel. And what takes place, verse 11, 2 Kings 14, but Amaziah would not listen something to just take note of in our hearts. If we're not willing to take heed to the word of God, why would we listen to anybody? If you're here today and you're completely living in denial of God's word, don't think you're somebody who collects wonderful counsel. You're self-serving at best in what you get in your counsel. And I say that from experience. Can you say it from experience? When we reject the ways of God... We may listen, but we're ultimately going to be the discerner of whether or not it pleases and it gives me the best shot for me and my kingdom and not his kingdom. He doesn't listen. So Jehoahash, king of Israel, went up, and he and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced one another in battle at Bethshemesh, Shemesh, which belongs to Judah, 15 miles away from Jerusalem. It's in Judah. In Verse 12, And Judah was defeated by Israel, and every man fled to his home. Verse 13, And Jehoash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, the king of Judah, the son of Jehoash, son of Ahaziah, at Beit Shemesh, and came to Jerusalem, broke down the wall of Jerusalem for 400 cubits, 600 feet, from the Ephraim gate to the corner gate. And he seized all the gold and silver and all the vessels that were found. In the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house, also hostages, he returned to Samaria. Verse 15, now the rest of the acts of Jehoash that he did in his might, and how he fought with Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? That's what we read. Verse 16, and Jehoahash slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel, and Jeroboam his son reigned in his place. But look at what it says about Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, lived 15 years after the death of Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel. And then in verse 18, now the rest of the deeds of Amaziah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And they made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to, I've always heard Lachish, but I've heard it pronounced differently. I'm going to go with my first one, Lachish. But they sent after him to Lachish and put him to death there many speculate this might have been the sons of the people that he killed we don't know but but everything's coming down and what's what's amazing is real quick second chronicles 25 27 gives this commentary here from the time when he turned away from the lord they made a conspiracy against him in jerusalem and he fled to Lachish, but they sent after him to Lachish and put him to death there when he turned from the Lord, it all went downhill. Verse 20, and they brought him on horses. He was buried in Jerusalem with his fathers in the city of David. We read about his son in verse 21 and 22. He's the third king mentioned in 2 Kings 14. And all the people of Judah took Azariah, who was 16 years old, made him king of his father, Amaziah. He built lot and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. So now, Jeroboam II. And the, the, if you understand the, the, the kings and the promise, Jehu was promised that there would be four kings after him that God would preserve. And that's exactly what's happening in Israel. It's God's faithfulness. Verse 23 to 30 is now telling us about Jeroboam II. And he had a marvelous reign according to man he gained more land you can possibly imagine. All the way to the Dead Sea, all the way north of the Galilee, he even, it says in verse 28, went into Syria, got Damascus. I mean, the land and the borders of Israel were going back to where they were. There was a glorious time of economic stability, in this 41 years that he reigned, but his reign was when Amos the prophet comes on the scene, and Amos did not have a lot of good things to say about Israel. So here is a man who's powerful, but here is a man who's completely against the ways of God. He's completely against the word of God. And you see that as you read 23 to 30 right away. When we look at this this morning, I want us to move into the snapshot of what we're looking at. We're looking at the good, the bad, and the lessons. What is the good? Let's walk through it. I mean, Amaziah had a long reign, took down his father's murderers, brought justice there, had restraint in sparing the kids of those murderers. He had a victory over Edom. Edom. He listened to the counsel of God for a season. He followed the ways of the Mosaic Law for a season. What was the good you see in Jehoash? I mean, he he did give Amaziah the right advice. Don't mess with me. I, you could say that was wise. He, according to man standards, had a great situation as he conquered the aggressive Amaziah. You go to twenty-one and twenty-two. Azariah, he built Eloth. Most think it's that which you go to the southern have been there. Elot at the very bottom of Israel, by the Gulf of Aqaba, all the way down. Elot, he built that big deal for all of it meant. Jeroboam II, he had an incredible land grab, economic prosperity, economic advances, reestablishes the northern kingdom's ancient boundaries. You can see some good that takes place with all four of these men. What's the bad? What's the bad? We're moving towards the lessons here. What's the bad? Amaziah. If we're going to sum up quickly, Amaziah's life, he turned away. He turned away. Everything that we can read turned south when he was victorious against the Edomites. He turned away. Jehoash. I mean, there's not much you can say good about chapter 14, verse 14, when he plundered much of the temple in Jerusalem. You get into the third guy, Azariah. He still tolerated the high places in verse 21 and 22. Offerings made by the people in the high places. In chapter 15, we'll have to go through this whole issue in verses one through seven that he became a leper. It seems to be connected. We'll have to look more into that. But then we got Jeroboam the second, and the bottom line is verse twenty-four, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which he made Israel to sin. Can you imagine? I think the audacity, like when they're sitting there in the uh, you know the birthing uh, hallway of the floor of the uh, hospital. And they're like, hey, what would be a cute name for this little boy? Let's name him after Jeroboam. That's like me coming up to you ladies and going, what's your precious little girl going to be? Oh, Jezebel. This is great. (laughs) And sadly, he follows down the same course. He goes the same way. But here's what I want to look at with you. The key lessons. We could go a lot of different directions. I want us to focus on pride. Let's narrow it to pride. Many others you could come up with that we could talk about, discuss, pride. I want to give you four takeaways on pride, and then we're going to be done. The first one, what will a proud heart do? Number one, it'll fill you with arrogant boasting. It'll fill you with arrogant boasting. Pride is having the wrong view of yourself. You're deceived. If you have the wrong view of yourself, you think you're something when you're not. It fills you with arrogant boasting, and we saw that, right? Come, let us look one another in the face was his way of saying, man, I am the king of the world. I can take you out. And and, and what happened? The, The king of Israel said, man, it's getting to your head it's getting to your head. What are you doing? He says in 2 Kings 14.10, the king of Israel says, you have indeed struck down Edom and your heart has lifted you up. And he says, be content with your glory. It's almost like he's saying, man, good job. You did good. but be, Just slow down. Be content. You're the man of the hour. Don't go blowing it now by thinking you're a big shot and come up here and challenge me. Just calm down. But it got to his head. Proud hearts will become arrogant, boasting hearts. It's sad, isn't it? It says in Psalm 94, Verse 3, O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? And then Psalm 94, 4, they pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. It doesn't matter what age of life. If you find an adult that's proud in their heart, that's arrogant, they have no understanding of who they really are before God. If you find someone, isn't it crazy? You can start with the oldest and go down to the youngest. If you find an older arrogant person, if you find a young arrogant kid, you know what it shows? He has no concept of reality. Psalm 1710, they close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. A proud heart will fill you with arrogant boasting. The second lesson here, a proud heart will lead you to miscalculate your successes. If that's not right grammar, just don't tell me. Your success. It leads you to miscalculate. Now, what do I mean here? There's some things that we learn here about Jeroboam II. We see this arrogant boasting evident with Amaziah. But with Jeroboam II, it's not necessarily mentioned, but enough is mentioned to take away the implication. He was evil in the sight of the Lord. And what happened under his reign? He was successful in all the ways men measure it. Here's a man that becomes the leader and the territory expands. Here's a man that becomes a leader and inflation drops. Here's a man that becomes the leader, and the job report improves. Here's someone, the stock market is booming. People's 401ks are humming along. Everything that a leader does that we would look and gauge a leader as being successful, he's got the pulse of all of it. But there's a problem. He is unaware of reality. He's unaware of reality. You say, what do you mean? Well, he's unaware of reality because listen to the explanation. Look at 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. What he doesn't know is that God is the one giving him success in spite of his life. Look at verse 25. He restored the border of Israel from Hamath as far as the Sea of Araba, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant. Who's the next guy, his servant? Jonah. You know who that guy is? Jonah in the well. There he is in 2 Kings. The son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hepher. Look at verse 26. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, For there was none left bonder free. There was none to help Israel. Verse 27, but the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam. Wait a minute. You mean to tell me that all the success he experienced wasn't because he was big and bad and powerful? No. He was a pawn in the hand of his creator he miscalculated it maybe you're here today and you have not come to the realization that everything that you've done that's been successful is simply a result of the grace and the mercy of God the grace that gave you the gifts the grace that gave you the ability the grace that gave you the intellect and the grace to arrange life in such a way that you were successful. The third lesson here on pride. A proud heart will turn you away from God and his word. Did you catch that here? He goes to Edom, and he just is victorious like crazy. But then what happened? Did he have any type of receptivity to the man of God? No. He rejected. 2 Chronicles 25:15. The Lord was angry with Amaziah, sent to him a prophet. Why have you sought the gods of a people who did not deliver their own people from your hand? And what does he do? Rather than humble himself and rather than heed the word of God, his pride now has gotten in the way. He rejects the counsel of God. He rejects the counsel of his people. Fourthly, a proud heart. A proud heart basically is the fabric of the old garment in Adam. You say, what do you mean? Pride summarizes what it looks like to be in Adam. There's two types of families in this world. This morning, you're either in Adam or you're in Jesus Christ. And the garment of the people of Adam, the fabric of that garment is known with pride. Remember Jesus says in Mark 7, 21, for from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. So this morning, learn some lessons about pride, but let's look at the flip side by the grace of God Let's look at the flip side and see how humility contrasts with pride. Pride fills you with arrogant boasting. A humble heart only made possible by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, a humble heart doesn't fill you with arrogant boasting. It fills you with the awareness of your great need. I love it. You know, today maybe you're here and, and uh, you're hanging on to God's word, everything you hear, and, and, and you're finding yourself like, I need more, I need more, I need this, I need this, I need this. Praise God. Praise God this morning because that's not a natural response to the word of God. If that's the re- reaction you're having this morning, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. If your reaction is more on the other side, I want to encourage you to pray and say, God, would you break this heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh? But if you're on the other side this morning and you're seeking a humble heart, I want you to thank God for his spirit revealing that to you. It fills you with the awareness of your great need. Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt. If your attitude this morning is not to flex on people, But your attitude is to say, oh, God, I'm so weak. I need you. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Humility. The second contrast. Pride will lead you to miscalculate your success, but a humble heart will lead you to dependence and gratitude. Think about that. The proud In their successes, they boost themselves up. When's the last time that things were going really well for you? Now, think about it. As a kid, it could be academically. It could be socially. It could be athletically. When's the last time all those things were happening teenager and you stopped and you literally wanted to hit your knees and say, thank you, God, I don't deserve any of this? Or did it make you want to say, yep, I'm the man, I'm the girl, I'm the woman? Or did it make you want to say, no, God, it's your gift. It's your gift. In the successes that you've recently experienced, what was your response? What was your response? Was it a self-righteous pride, or did it literally almost bring a tear to your eye as you reflected on the blessings that only God can give? Thirdly, a humble heart doesn't turn you away from God and his word, It leads you to God and His Word. Backing up, I love this. You know, think about Paul. You think about a guy that God chose to use in a way that was marvelous. And what was his attitude in the midst of it all? But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And then he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's almost like you could say, Paul, what do you think about being a a, a celebrity pastor in the world's eyes? What do you think about being one of the most known, notable people that are servants of God? It's as if at that point he would say, I count everything as loss. I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ crucified I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. I want to know him in the fellowship of his sufferings. That was his attitude. Why? Because humility from the Holy Spirit had brought him to a place of dependence and thankfulness. A humble heart leads you to God and his word. By the power of the Holy Spirit, when we become humble and the Holy Spirit is working in our heart, there's a desire to do what? In James 121, put away filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness humility, receive with a teachable heart the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. I want to ask you a question this morning. What area of your life right now is a great concern to you? Maybe a, it could be a decision on which road to go down. It could be a situation of trial. It could be a situation of temptation. Here's the question. Are you willing to submit your will to the will of God and the word of God. There's your answer as to whether or not you're proud or humble. A humble heart, by the grace of God, is willing to say, oh God, you've got to break down this, this heart of pride because I'm so tempted to go away from your way. But God, would you break down my resistance? Would you break down my disobedience? And, oh, God, would you give me a heart to follow you? A humble heart is led to God in his word. And then finally this morning, a humble heart, praise be to God, is fabric, is the fabric of the new garment in Christ Jesus. At salvation, what do we learn positionally takes place? It's hard to, you know, like all we know is if we look back at our testimony and we say, hey, all I know is by grace through faith in Christ. I believed on Jesus. He mysteriously saved me. We could go around the room and some were saved at youth camp, some were saved in a church service, some were saved as a friend shared the gospel to you. I remember Judy Riley telling me one time, she goes, I was saved reading the Bible. I just read it and I was saved. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. But what happens? At salvation, you can't see it happening, but mysteriously, you put off the old man. You put on the new man. And then now, as we learn to live as a Christian, Paul says, be who you are. Live in light of who God has made you in Christ. The new man's already been put on positionally. Now, practically... Daily, submit to Jesus, walk by faith, obey him in dependence. Daily, don't go back to the laundry basket and get that nasty, stinky t-shirt out and put it back on. No, put on the new man, put on the new man, be who you are. And what are we told to be? As those who Christ has saved, Colossians 3.12, put on them. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, Humility, meekness, and patience. So today, as we land the plane, two passages that I believe would be appropriate to pray together. One is Psalm 5110. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me all of us corporately are invited at this point to say, God, would you, thank you for revealing my pride. Thank you for showing me my arrogance. It could be that when pride is evident in the life, it's either a marker that you're sick spiritually or you're dead spiritually. As Christians, it means we're sick spiritually. We're not walking in fellowship with Christ. But but sometimes it reveals that we've never experience what it means to be truly saved. That we may have professed Christ, but we never may have never possessed him. We may have never have known him. We may have had an empty outward ritualism, but never experienced the heart of change that only the spirit can bring. But the second passage, and we're done. Search me, O heart, Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me, in the way everlasting. If you bow your heads with me this morning as we pray as Mike comes again I want to I want to encourage you. We're reading through these kings and even the good ones they struggle. We looked at we're looking at the series and We've sort of subtitled it, God's faithfulness, Israel's rebellion, and the need for a greater king. The need for a greater king. That we need a greater king. It's only in Jesus can we be what God called us to be. And the Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross to take our sin upon himself that we might be saved. And the scripture says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Have you trusted God? Have you believed in Jesus? Have you seen yourself in need of him? And the beauty is this. It's so wonderful. The beauty is he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We can't, make ourselves more humble. It's a work of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit reveals to us our need, and the goodness and the grace of Jesus is that he freely gives to those who call on his name. Father, I pray in this time of reflection right now that if there are people in this room that don't know you, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, they'd come to salvation I pray, Lord, that you'd help all of us in this room right now to look at our hearts. I pray that through your spirit, we would walk putting on what is reflective of who you have made us to be in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your grace. I pray today you'd be glorified in our response. It's in Jesus' name we pray.